You're listening to the Freedom House Podcast. We're a house that will empower you in your walk with Christ to get free, live free, and set others free. This is our Sunday service series. For more information, go to FHUS.org. Enjoy. All right, this is called Jesus Did It, and of course, uh, I'm so thankful with uh, that skit which was done. It speaks of what Jesus did, but I want to go a little bit further and be able to articulate. Sometimes when it comes to Easter, uh, we become so involved in the culture of Easter that we miss the kingdom of Easter, and I'm praying that through this sermon, uh, I'll be able to articulate in a way that gives you divine understanding, as well as hopefully, I pray through the pricking of your conscience that you will place a correct value system. Uh, I find so many Christians in the church, they don't have right value systems. They're seeking wrong things, and they place their value in things that are perishing. And so we want to show you those things. First of all, the question, obviously, Jesus did it. Jesus did what? And first thing we want to say is that the things that he did, first and foremost, is already been stated that all of the things, as far as the fulfillment of Jesus' coming and the things that he accomplished were already prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, there are several things that were prophesied, and I like to jokingly say that God like telegraphs the enemy, you know, and you're not supposed to in boxing telegraph, you're supposed to just hit without telegraphing where you're going. But God is so shrewd and he's so wise, he telegraphs and he telegraphs not just to the enemy who would bring destruction to your soul, but he also telegraphs letting you know through signs and wonders, through prophetically speaking in the past of all the things that he's going to do. For our encouragement. There are eight of them, eight things that I just want to go through real briefly and very quickly. By no means is this exhaustive. In fact, there are several, and we just simply for the sake of time don't have the ability to go through all the things that were spoken. And listen, when, it ta- when we're talking Abraham to Jesus, we're talking 1,800 years, and there were things that were prophesied hundreds of years beforehand, so with great accuracy and with great precision, Words were spoken, they were prophesied in the past, and they were speaking, and listen, they're for our admonition. So the first thing we see is the seed of woman, that Jesus would be the seed of woman. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil." Uh, You may not be aware of it. Uh, Church culture sometimes does not emphasize this point, but there is indeed not just this terrestrial world, but there is a celestial world. There is not only this seen world, there is actually this unseen world. And there's much evidence of it, if you're honest, you'll understand this. The world doesn't sometimes understand the nature of this. This is why they'll call it paranormal activity, and they'll use certain verbiage to be able to articulate the things that they don't understand. But for those of us who know the Bible, we understand there's a seen and as well as an unseen world. And here's what you need to know. That unseen world is actually more real than the seen world. The only reason why you don't see it that way is because your eyes aren't open up to that world. And we want to begin to look at this because when we talk about Jesus, many people have heard about Jesus. He took away the sin of the world, but we see the consequence in this terrestrial world, but we don't actually see the calamity that was caused and what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection did in that world. And I'm praying that your eyes will be opened up so that you'll have correct value system and you'll make an assessment of your life because this life is very, very quick. You know, I'm 53 years old and some Sometimes I joke with my wife, I still feel like I'm 20 years old. We're going to Trinidad, we're going all over, and I like want to get to more nations and do a lot more things. I almost feel like I'm getting younger, at least in my ambition. Usually you're ambitious in your younger years. I'm finding I'm getting more ambitious, but it's, I believe, because we're closing in, and this is but a breath wind. It's but a vapor, and so we need to understand and have right value systems. So Hebrews, again, states this, that the one who holds the power of death, this is why this skit was so powerful. It gave you an insight into that invisible world of demonic activity. And sometimes in the church, only in America, 2,000 years later, in a first world country, could you get away with the activities of a church and build a church without the activities of Jesus being seen. Did you hear what I just said? You know, the activities of Jesus and what he did, setting people free, spirit, soul, and body, He is actually doing today. The book of Hebrews states that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. That means what you see, 
what he did recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as throughout the book of Acts, he still does today. So he's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's uh, uh, forever. That means we are to continue in the activities that Jesus did until he returns. And that's breaking the power of a very real enemy. You know, in our culture, we're teaching people how to cope with things. This is the reason why we, uh, for example, anxiety and depression, all these things. The world system will try to teach you how to cope with these things. And so what happened is that's infiltrated into the church to where we have what I call coping theology. But Jesus didn't have a coping theology. He had an overcoming theology. He had a victory. Jesus is the one who says, because I have overcome, you overcome too. So we have to have an overcoming theology. He didn't say, because I've coped with it, you can cope too. No, he said, because I've overcome, I've ascertained victory, you too also will have victory yourself. And so we have to have an overcoming and breakthrough. And that only comes when you are acquainted with the power of God. Are you here, church? I know it's Easter, but why are you so quiet? It's because of the power of God. It's, the Bible says it's the power of God unto salvation, not just church activity unto salvation. Sometimes we have a lot of Christian culture activity in the church, but not the power of God in the church. And the power of God needs to be in the church a lot more than what it is to display what Jesus has actually done. This is why people live according to church culture and not kingdom culture. Because only in kingdom culture is the power of God made manifest. But some people, they love their culture more than the kingdom. So what is it that you love? And this is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush, watch this, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is obviously what God spoke uh, to Satan. And that's the position that we as believers that are found in Christ, that's, the, that's not coping with the enemy, that's putting him under your feet. That's called crushing theology. It's called overcoming theology. It's called victory theology, not coping theology. And so we see that as a fulfillment, and the fulfillment is found in Christ. So that's where I encourage you. Are you just coping along in life? Jesus is the one who will give you overpower and victory, but we have to yield to him. We have to submit and surrender our lives to his purpose. The second one is the seed of Abraham. This is found in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. I love this. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And this is what was said. All nations will be blessed through you. It proceeds and it goes down in verse 16 and says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That's singular, seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds. That is to say plural. Meaning many people. But to, and to your seed. Meaning one person who is Christ. So it was prophesied that through this seed, there would become victory, and that seed became that person called Christ. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, this is where it's spoken, I will bless you. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, you will, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. And again, this shows us that we have been grafted in spiritually by which we could know Christ and have communion with him in that place. Number three, he was of the tribe. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Israel had 12 tribes, and this happens to be one of them. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a lion. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So it was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand, thousands of years that he would come from the tribe of Judah. Number four, no bone was broken. You remember that crucifixion scene and under a Roman crucifixion, what would they do? To ensure death, they would come and they would break the legs, take a hammer and break the leg of the person that was hanging to ensure that there was death. And indeed that happened. But when it came to Jesus, ironically enough, it didn't happen. This is why 
in the book of John chapter 9, verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. It continues on in verse uh, 37, the next verse. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced and they will mourn. This is found in the book of Exodus. And just so that you're aware, Jesus is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You say, what does a lamb? Why is he called a lamb? You have to go back all the way to the Old Testament by which there was an atonement. The Bible states that life is in the blood. So that means without blood, there is no life. And so the atonement for sin in the Old Testament was year after year, they would have to slaughter a lamb. And the lamb had to be perfect and it had to be without blemish. And what it did is it brought an atonement. It brought a covering. That is to say they would have to come year after year for the atonement. Furthermore, they would lay hands on it. This is where we get the doctrine of the laying on of hand. It's not just the transmission of God's power, but it's also imputing our unrighteousness and imputing our sin into a lamb. That's what the priests would do. So it's an impartation, and there was a great transfer that occurred. Your sins would go into that lamb. And so they would do that. And here in the book of Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, it says this. It must be eaten inside. This is Passover. Inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house and do not break any of its bones. Now, how many know that because sin entered the world and death entered into the world through that sin? I don't know if you're aware of this. You are actually created in the image of God and you are never actually to die. Were you aware of that? You see, God's original intent for humanity is far distinguished from every other creature on the earth. And so therefore, what God wanted to do and what we had with him was we were clothed with the glory of God. That is also to say this terrestrial world and that celestial world, there was no chasm that there is. And if I can bring some understanding to this, I don't know if we have scuba diver here or at least fishermen. If you've gone scuba diving, how many know that in the aquatic world, that's a whole world in and of itself. Those sea creatures know nothing about the terrestrial world, unless, of course, they get caught by a fisherman and they come up and then they're introduced to the terrestrial world, which wants to eat them. But we see that there's a separation. Well, so likewise, just as there is a separation between the terrestrial world and the aquatic world that is down there, so there is also this chasm between the invisible world and the visible world. And we have evidence of, of this. This is the reason why you have paranormal. What is paranormal? Paranormal is simply the evidence of that unseen world coming into the seen world. You know, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there was a particular prophet in which there were natural enemies that were coming. And his assistant next to him was actually scared and was concerned that all these enemies on chariots were there and coming into where they were at. And of course, the prophet had no concern. And so he turned towards his assistant and said, open up his eyes and when he, to see who is for us rather than those who are against us. And the Bible says that his eyes were opened up, literally into that unseen world, into the spirit world. And he saw the chariots of God that were encamped along there. In other words, they saw the angels of God that were encamped in there. And of course, that would have brought great solace. But the point that I'm trying to make is our life here in this terrestrial world, in this seen world, is unknown in that world. And though we may deny it, the fact of the matter is at the end of this age, we will give an account for the knowledge that we do have through conscience, through the scripture, through miracles, etc. Through conscience, we will give an account for what we know. And so this is why it's important to understand that in this, here's the next one, that he was the serpent in the wilderness. Now, in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, it says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Even in the medical community, we understand that that serpent that we see on that pole is, is, is a symbol of medicine. And that's fulfilled in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verse 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put him up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. 
Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now listen, when you look to Jesus, just like in the Old Testament, they look to it. It says vipers, if they were bitten, they were healed from it. Now this isn't talking about physical vipers. This is talking about demonic powers and entities by which when we look to Christ, we're safeguarded from these things that would like to attack us. And again, not cope with them, but we overcome them because they're to be underneath our feet. And so God is telegraphing in the Old Testament those who were conditioned to this terrestrial or this natural world, telegraphing the victory that isn't just to come here in the New Testament, but uh, excuse me, in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, in the not just the seen world, but also in the unseen world. We see number six. He was a star out of Jacob. Matthew chapter two, verse two says, and ask. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and am the bright morning star. In the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, the prophecy, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the peoples of Sheoff. Is this talking about natural people? No, it's talking about the enemy that would be put under his feet. This is why the ministry of Jesus, when you look at him, what was it that he went? He went about, according to the book of Acts, he went about preaching the gospel. He was casting out devils and healing all their sick. And all that came to him were made whole. Why? That's the ministry that we see fulfilled here. And that ministry that Jesus did 2,000 years ago is a ministry that he's still doing today. And everyone says... Number seven, he was cursed on the tree. You see, there was a great transference that occurred. It's not just sin went into him, but his righteousness was imputed into us. You see, it's not just he covered our sin. Because again, in the Old Testament, a natural lamb is still part of this creation which has fallen. So though according to the natural it is without blemish, it still has blemish because it was born in this world system. So in other words, that is to say, even that which is perfect is still imperfect according to God. This is why Jesus is the perfect lamb. He was not part of this creation at all. Therefore, it's through his sufficiency that when we look to him, as we look to the, uh, in the Old Testament, as you look to Jesus, that's where healing comes. You see, mankind is trying to justify themselves through their own self-righteousness, through religions, through philosophies of this world. But listen, it's insufficient. In fact, the book of Isaiah says that our righteousness, no matter how good it is, is as filthy rags. I don't know if you're aware of this. When it talks about filthy rags, it, when I first read this, I thought like a washcloth, you know, when you go into the shower and you put soap in a washcloth. No, when it's talking about that, it's talking about used women's menstrual cloth. So your righteousness, no matter how good you think you are, in the sight of God, it's as that, rags. I want you to think about that for a moment. You see, because we in this terrestrial, in this seen world, we make judgments and we compare ourselves against other people. Oh, I'm not like a Hitler. Oh, I'm not like a Mussolini. Oh, I'm not like this person or that person. But what you fail to understand is that you are judging according to this earth standard, not according to God's standard. Yes. And God's standard far surpasses all of that. If I could use this analogy... You know, back when Nico, as well as our girls, when they're, you know, I think it was kindergarten, when you're, you're, they're learning their numbers, and then they're learning, you know, one plus one is two. You know, you know addition, and then you learn subtraction, and then after that, then you begin to learn multiplication, and then division, and that's usually where I end in being able to help my kids <laughs> at that point. I'm really good with numbers up in my head, but once I get points, I start petering off like this, and I'm like, okay, get the tutor in there. I'm, Honey, you're really good. You, you begin to do this. But how many know the most advanced levels of genius mathematics 
the equations that are involved at the genius level. Imagine trying to articulate to someone who's learning one plus one is two. The most advanced mathematics. How many know that to be able to even articulate, they wouldn't be able to even comprehend what is being said? And if I can use that as an analogy, that the gulf that there is between that realm where God is at and where we live, the chasm is actually even greater than that. His glory is so spectacular, which we're going to talk about this, because the resurrection unto what? A glorified state. You see, all of us are mortal, but all of this mortality is going to be swallowed up in that which is glorification. And so as we begin to see, and let's look at the last one, number eight, he was declared the son of God. In the book of Hebrews chapter five, verse five, it says in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I've become your father. In fact, in the book of Acts chapter 13, verse 33 says, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalms, you are my son, today I have become your father. This is precisely why when Jesus was baptized and even all the people heard what came from heaven, it was a voice saying, this is my beloved son. Notice it didn't say, this is my beloved rabbi. This isn't my beloved prophet. This isn't my beloved preacher or my beloved charismatic gifted individual, my, my beloved Uh, sign worker or miracle worker said, this is my beloved son. In other words, a reconciliation. And this is the reason why we have such fractured identities in the culture that we have today. Why? Because of the depravity of the human heart, because of the brokenness and because of the separation. This is why you have people grappling with gender uh, uh, dysphoria, uh, uh, all this confusion. Why is that? And listen, we should have a heart in which we sympathize because we understand the real nature and the problem is the enemy has ensnared and tormented people and brought this level of confusion. But in Christ, all of that is stripped away. All of that confusion is eradicated. There is no confusion because we, you were created in the image of God. You are not created like the animals. You are created special to image his presence. But because of sin, we were separated from his glory. Next point, significance of the resurrection. So you may be asking, what's the significance of it? Of course, Friday we celebrated in which, of course, it was the death of Jesus. But Jesus affirms the resurrection. In fact, in the book of Matthew chapter 23, there were some religious people. It's always religious people. It's not the common man. The common man usually loved Jesus, all the religious people that don't. Some of you get that by next week. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. It's not, relig- it's not the, the common man that comes to him and tries to question him and try to trick him theologically. It's the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees in the Bible are the people that are super religious. Okay, They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the resurrection. That whole world, they don't believe into it. So they're almost like you know, atheists in that way. So they come to try and trick Jesus with a marriage question with regards to the resurrection. And of course, he already knows they don't even believe in it. So why you question him on that point? So they're just trying to trick him. And he makes this statement. Jesus replied, you are in error. Why? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Every person, whether they're born again or not, err because of two things. Number one, you don't know the scripture. Why? Because in the scripture, there is life. In the scripture is truth. It is the living word of God. It's different than any other type of book that there is on the face of the earth. And through this living word, it brings life to our spirit. It brings life to our soul. So he says, you do err because you know not the scriptures, nor the power of God. Two reasons. And sometimes in the church, we know the scripture, but we don't know the power of God. And sometimes we think we know the scripture, but we don't know the scripture because the scripture is to change us. And the reason why we say we know the scripture is because we uh, change the scripture in order to fit our image rather than us image God. You see, it was the power of God, the Bible says, unto salvation. It was the demonstration of the power of God. In fact, and Paul in Corinthians, do you know how he established churches? 
He established churches not by just all kinds of activities and just, you know, passing out tracts and doing different types of thing and having cool lights and all these things. No, he went about setting people free, casting out devils, healing the sick. And that's why the apostle Paul says, when I came amongst you, I did not come with mere enticing words of men's wisdom, but in power and in demonstration of the spirit that your faith may not rest upon my articulation of how clever and how smart I am and how deep I can get in intellectual and philosophical on you. No, but in the demonstration that you saw people get set free. That's the best type of salvation that there is. And that's the best one I like in building a church. And we have many people here that have been set free by the power of God. We got people getting healed all the time, whether it's here and many of those who are in relationship with us as a missionary online. I think it was just a couple of weeks, uh, maybe within a month, we had someone over here. Their ear opened up. We had someone last week or two weeks ago over here. Their leg came out. They were healed by the power of Christ. We had several. How many people have been set free from demon power? Come on, we have to take a look around. What does that, you say, pastor, demon? Yeah, it means they were frothing at the mouth and demons were coming out of them. I know this is shocking on an Easter Sunday morning, but it's true. And I say, God, let it happen more. And you say, I don't know. I think that's a little bit weird. Good. Make your judgment. I don't care. My job here is to bring the power of God so that at the last day, you have to give an account for what you saw. So that when miracles happen, you say, well, I don't know if it was done by that power. Well, did you do the miracle? No, I didn't. Well, then shut up because you're not the person who knows how it was done. I do. It was by the power of Jesus Christ. That's my job as a preacher, to put it in your face. And hopefully I win you over to the cause of Christ. But if I don't and I offend you, good. I don't care. You'll have to give an account for what you saw and whether you believed it or not believed it. So my job at the end of the age is line them up, Jesus. Just bring, no, I sat there. I dem- No, they were set free. No, they were eyewitnesses of this. No, I was there. I pulled this person out of a wheelchair. They were healed by the power. And those three people watched it themselves. You're here to give a judgment of what's going to happen at the last day. And everyone says. So Jesus affirms that. Jesus teaches about the resurrection. He teaches us in Matthew chapter 22, as I just stated, Matthew chapter 24. The whole Matthew chapter 24 is about the end of the age. Jesus teaches it himself. Furthermore, it's actually in chapter 25. When he comes back, he's actually, he prophetically tells you and warns you that he's coming and what kind of people are going to be judged harshly? You see, there's actually two types of judgment. I don't know if you're aware of this. This is, this is standard Christian theology and doctrine. Did you know Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says there's six elementary. Say elementary. elementary. Turn to your neighbor. Say elementary. elementary. There are six elementary Christian doctrines. The last two is resurrection and eternal judgment. In other words, about last things. One-third of solid Christian doctrine actually is talking about the end of the age. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, encourage one another with these words, knowing that the life that we live is actually a life that is not just by at the end of the age, nothing's going to happen, but what we labor here in this life is a laboring for the hereafter in that unseen realm. And so we have to have a value system that the things that we do, the things that we chase, the things that you think are important, is it really important when we know that the end of the age is actually upon us? And everyone says. This is why in Matthew chapter 25, he talks about the sheeps and the goats. He begins to talk about the relationship of what that judgment looks like. I encourage all of you to read that. Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter uh, 25. He speaks about these things. Now, what is the significance of the resurrection? Because sometimes that's what we talk, but we also stop there and we say, oh, he rose from the dead. Woo, hallelujah. This is wonderful and this is great. But let me tell you the consequence of this. And this is where I want to really narrow in and zero in on this point to open up your understanding. And this is why I talked about this unseen realm, because we have to understand the significance of the glory. Because when Jesus, through the resurrection, entered into glory, there is actually mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. And that's where we enter into what's called a glorified state. Say glorified state. state. 
I just gave you a $3 theological word right there, but let me unpack this for you. The first thing that we notice is Jesus in his resurrected body established the law and the prophets. This is why in Luke chapter 24, 25 to 27, it says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer for these things and then enter his glory? So there's an entering into this glory. It's not just like it's a life like this. There is a glory that is there. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scripture concerning himself. Now, this was Jesus uh, speaking to them after he had rose from the dead, explaining the scriptures to them that he had to die and then enter into glory. And in so doing, God restored original intent. You see in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. We're all under the pen. If you were born in this earth life, this terrestrial seen world, guess what? You are under the penalty of sin and death. This is why we all die. You see, we look at it because we were birthed into the earth. We think this is normal. But according and against God's original intent, that is not normal. You are intended to live forever because in God, he did not die. And so we were to image him. And it's not just about us living for, uh, uh, forever or living uh, uh, forever, but it's also about quality of life, being in his glory. And this is the part that mankind in this terrestrial world cannot explain those things. Did you know the Apostle Paul? He states, and he speaks about himself in the third person. He says, I knew a man in Christ. He goes, whether in the spirit or out of the spirit, I don't know. God knows. But he saw inexplicable things. And most theologians agree. He's actually talking about himself. In other words, the things that he saw in this world, there was no human language to be able to articulate what he saw. And that's what you got to realize. How in this earth life, again, and I use the illustration, basic math versus genius math. How do you explain to mere mortals sounds that are so beautiful that there's no earthly words or no earthly languages to be able to articulate those things? How do you articulate to those in the seen realm about things so beautiful that you see that there's no words to be able to describe and all of it falls flat because there's no words to be able to articulate those things. How do you articulate to mere mortals a realm in which there are smells that are so beautiful? Ladies, they knock out even the best perfumes you may wear. How do you articulate those things? There's no words to be able to articulate those words. This is why when glory, when Moses asked to see God, he said, no man can see me and live. Because we cannot, because of the mortality and because of the sin issue, he would literally vaporize us. It's kind of like fire. Does anybody blame the fire for burning things? No, that's the nature of fire. God is holy and he is glorious. And we have to understand that Jesus is the one who brought reconciliation by which there is a resurrection as well as we come into a place of a glorification. This is why it's part of solid Christian doctrine. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that if you don't believe in the re resurrection, he says he's a false witness and he's a liar and your faith is in vain. So listen, we're under obligation of the scriptures to actually believe that there is a resurrection. And just as Jesus was risen from the dead, so likewise we also will rise from the dead. That's the power of the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. We're awaiting a new body. Did you know in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul writes this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5? For we know that if the earthly tent, this is a tent, hit yourself like this, tap your neighbor, don't hit him. That's a tent. Tell him, that's a tent. This is a tent right here. The apostle Paul reckons this terrestrial body as a tent. He says this, for we know that this earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God. He doesn't even know how to tell. He says, this is a tent, but there's a building. So in other words, and this is a building, I might add, that you've never seen. 
And there's no words to be able to articulate these things. This is why the prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, when he was taken up into the spirit and he goes into the throne room, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Imagine that, a prophet who is holy comes up into that place and says, man, I'm totally undone. I'm fit to be destroyed. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he said, I saw, and he's trying to articulate to human beings thousands of years ago, but there's no words that are sufficient enough to be able to explain what he was seeing. He says, this train filled the temple. A train? You know, uh, uh, not a choo-choo train, come on. Like a woman's train when she gets married, or like a royalty, a king would wear the robe in which there was a train. Well, he said, so glorious was it, it filled the whole temple. What was it? He's trying to explain to mere mortals. It's not literally a train. It's his glory. Did you know the word glory in the Old Testament in Hebrew is kabat? And it's actually, it means weight. This is why people sometimes, and listen, this is where God goes peekaboo in from, the, from the unseen world into the seen world. People get prayed for and they fall under the power. What is it? That's the weight of his glory. You say, that sounds a little bit weird. I know Jesus is weird. It happened to him too. You say, where? When the Romans came to him and said, we're looking for Jesus. Are you him? And he says, I am he. And when he said, I am he, the Bible says he's hard. They weren't in an altar call. They came, it says they drew back or they went back. So in other words, he carried such a powerful glory. Listen, that's the reason why demons manifested because he carried the glory. You say, well, I think I carry the glory. Do demons manifest around you? That's proof you don't carry it. And it shows us that God has reconciled us because he wants to be a carriers of his glory and be in communion with him. Continues on. It says in verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Stop right there. Remind me, I'm on verse 4. In the Old Testament, do you remember? You remember, you got to go back to Sunday school. We're naked. And he said, who said you are naked? Okay. Why was it that they said they're naked? Because when they sinned, what did they lose? They were clothed before. What were they clothed with? The glory of God. It was literally a brilliant light. Again, we're trying to articulate to you. It's more than just light. How do we know it's more than just light? Because the Apostle Paul on the road to, to uh, 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 tar, you know, from Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus, on the road, he was knocked off of his high horse, and he said he saw a light that was more brilliant than the noonday sun. Imagine that. You're in the Middle East, a desert, noonday sun. How many of you know that's about the brightest element that there is? And he says that this eclipsed that. So they're trying to explain the glory in earth terminology, but it is insufficient to be able to explain what he saw. And so powerful was that event that it readjusted his life and what he lived for in his value system until the day that he, he, he died. How powerful is that glory? This is why the Bible says, I believe it's in the book of Romans, no eye has seen, no ear has heard all those things that God has prepared for us. We have no earthly idea what awaits us. This is why people have stupid ideas. Well, if my friends aren't there, I don't want to go. It's like, you're thinking heaven is just like this place. You fail to understand it's a whole nother dimension of living, of perfection. And even perfection, the word is insufficient word to explain that place. Do you understand what I'm saying? Again, genius level math, this is, huh, what? One plus one is two. And you're trying to explain these things to me. And how much greater is that chasm between these? Verse four, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has purpose uh, excuse me, fashion for us this very purpose. Verse five says this. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. This is why he gives the Holy Spirit. 
This is why you even see, you know, he said, wait until you're endued with power. What is a deposit? It's in Roman business. What they would do is simply like a deposit, like if you were to go there and give maybe 10%. And what it does is it being security, now that I give you a deposit, I now have claim to that so that even though I leave, you as a business owner cannot sell that. Why? Because I put a deposit down on it. So it permits that person from actually reselling it. So what the scripture is saying is the Holy Spirit at that point was given to us, but it's only a small, tiny deposit. But it gives us a taste of the powers, according to scriptures, the powers of the world to come. Do you know there's a powers in the world to come that we are unacquainted with here on planet Earth? And there is no words to be able to articulate that. But what are you living for? What are you living for? What are your ambitions in life? I tell you, there's a world that's going to come, and this world is racing by quickly. Again, I'm 53 years old. I feel like I'm 20. I blink my eyes. My kids are now in high school now. One of them is. And I'm like, where does all this time go? And for you young ones, you go, yeah, I know. I heard that from my parents. You're going to be saying the same thing when you reach my age. I remember when that preacher said, and I'm going, it does. And... <laughs> Just like, you know, there's two things that are always going to happen. Number one, you're always going to have taxes. And number two, death is going to come to all people. What are you doing? How are you preparing for that day? Have you prepared? Because when you understand that this day is real and the glory's therein, the labors that you do on earth will be on behalf because everything you sow in this life will be for that which comes in the afterlife. And you have to make a decision how you're living. Are you just living your best life? Or are you living his best life? And for far too long, the church just wants to equip you how you can live your life rather than living for his life. And it's insufficient. I believe this is why at the end of the age, Jesus also warned. There are going to be many people that said, Lord, Lord. And all of a sudden they thought they were going to get in, but they didn't. Why? Because they lived for themselves. They didn't live for the Lord. Are you here? In the garden, as I stated, man was clothed with glory. This seen realm, the terrestrial world, or the unseen world, the celestial world, these parallels, as I stated, we can see these basic things. Did you know in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. Did you know that at the end of the age, there are two different types of judgments? There's a judgment unto damnation. And then there's also for the Christians, I don't know if you're aware of this, it's called the Bema Seat of Christ in which Christians are actually going to be judged. It's not unto damnation, but it's unto rewards. Did you know that? Basic Christian doctrine right here. And did you know, and this is my belief system, because... When it talks about we were cast our crowns and it talks about the rewards, it's going to be all in accordance to what you did and how you made here on earth. Of course, it's by the grace of God. It's not based on works, but it's God's grace working with you. This is why the apostle Paul says, it wasn't me who was, I work and I labor, but it's the grace of God that is laboring on my behalf. So you choose to cooperate with the grace that you receive from God. So do you just sit there, eh, I want to live my own life and maybe not really? Or do you cooperate with the grace of God? And according to that, that's where your rewards are going to be. What is your rewards? This is what I believe. Your rewards are going to be based on the level of the glory of God that you carry. You say, where is that in Scripture? The Apostle Paul talks about this. He talks about this, the, the cosmic world. He says, the, just like there are certain stars that have a greater level of brilliance than other stars you know some have a tiny little twinkle some have greater glitter twinkles and then he talks about the moon it has one level of splendor and the 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 sun has another level of splendor this is what he says after he says all that he says so is the resurrection that means we will be rewarded accordance into the level of the glory that we carry this is why when the bible talks about casting our crowns did you know in the old testament crowns is symbolic of glory this is why in the book of Proverbs, it says a wife is what a crown of glory to her husband. 
So crowns actually speak of glory. So when it says that we cast all of our crowns before him, it's in other words, we are entering into glory with him. We have been glorified. We carry the glory of God, but we understand it wasn't us who brought about this glory. It was him, and we're giving all the glory back to him. We will carry glory in that time and in that place. This is why, again, Moses in the Old Testament no, he, 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 God puts him in the cleft of a rock and then goes by him. And what does he do? He ends up glowing because he saw his backside. Well, listen, do you understand glory is actually to, the, to, to those who are mortal is horrific? Why do you think every time an angel, which comes before the glory of God, comes into it, why, what does the first thing angels say? Fear not. Why? Because people are like, ah! <laughs> Read the Bible! They don't go, whoa, this is really cool. Look, I just saw an angel. They're like, oh, my God. They freak out because they carry the glory of God. And they're like, oh, and they begin to shake and they begin to tremble because of the glory of God that comes. When Jesus comes back, which he said himself, he's going to come descending on a throne with a myriad of angels. There's going to be more angels than there are people on this earth, billions of people. And it's going to fill the earth. This is why the scriptures declare that men will say, those who are not saved, let the rocks fall upon us, let the mountains fall upon us to hide ourselves from the glory of him whom we see. They'll be so terrified. Literally, their insides will be turned inside out and their depravity and what they have loved as well as, you know, whom they've loved will be revealed in that moment. And that's where all of a sudden at the end of the age, whether you like it or not, that chasm, that curtain will disappear and we will see people. Jesus gives a hint of this. This is why in his heart, he'll know certain things by the spirit. He would say to one particular person, why do you think these things in your heart? Which is easier to say? And he would reveal through a word of knowledge. What was that? The curtain was torn away. We have a curtain right now, but I'm encouraging you to live your life here on this side of the curtain and make your investment on what's on the other side of that curtain, because that is a, uh, rapidly approaching and everyone says did you get something out of that I want you to stand your feet right now the power of the resurrection is what the power that we're going to be glorified with him I don't want anybody here to miss that. I want every head bowed. I want every eye closed. I want this to be a moment between you and God who actually sees you and he sees your heart and he sees what you're thinking right now. I don't see it. Your neighbor doesn't see it. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're thinking about, man, he's a long-winded preacher. Hurry up and bring it to a close because I'm hungry. But God knows. God knows the secret thoughts and the intents of your heart. And here's what I can tell you as a preacher. And it's my job to bring you into this knowledge that he absolutely loves you. And the life that you can architect for yourself totally falls face down and compared to what he has planned for you doesn't mean you're going to have the greatest life. You're going to be the wealthiest person and all those personal ambitions that you have. But what I can tell you is it is a life worth living. I myself was ambitious back in my 20s. I wanted to be a triathlete. I was aiming. I, I liked the idea of crossing finish lines and having fame and fortune and all those things. But God said, I'll give you a job. Will you preach for me? I had to make a decision. Did I want to live for myself and for fame and for fortune and have visions of myself crossing Iron Man lines? Or was I willing to lay down what I wanted to in order to live for him? And I tell you the truth. I am so glad I made that decision. I can't imagine what, I literally cannot imagine what my life would be without Christ. I don't know how people live life without Christ. When you come into a relationship, this is why Jesus made the statement, a man must be. He didn't say, well, it's a good idea if he does become born again. He said, a man must be born again. Must. Why? 
because through the born again experience by his power by his spirit he makes you new he raises you spiritually from the dead I'm certain certain most all of you have been to a funeral before paying respects to someone who's passed away for some of you maybe you have had open caskets that person that you see that is dead he's dead to this terrestrial life he can't he can't, through the five natural senses, discern this earth life. That person's dead. Can't see, can't hear, can't smell, can't taste, can't touch. That person is dead to this earth world. So likewise, we became dead men walking to his presence and to his power in that unseen realm, which is more vast and more real than this terrestrial world. And I'm inviting you to make a leap a leap into his glory. A leap to make a confession of faith. Not to live by your own self-righteousness, whatever that looks like, but to make a confession of faith. Jesus, you're the Lamb of God. I recognize that it was my sin who put you up on that cross. I need you to come into my life that I may be born again. If that is you, I want you to lift your hands right now boldly. Yes, I see hands all across the place. Over on the right side. Anybody else? Anybody else? You know, I can see the presence of God moving on some of you. Tears are in the eyes because of this realization. So what I want you to do is I want you to repeat a prayer with me. And I know it's going to be real. It's not going to be fake because of what I see in your face. So I want you to repeat after me, Jesus, I thank you that you came into the world. You surrendered your life to a Roman cross. You died for me. You took upon me the sin and the sin of the world. I thank you, Jesus, that when you took away my sin, you imputed your righteousness. I thank you, Jesus. Make me new. Make it so I'm born again. Thank you that I live now forever with you. I say to you, Jesus, I surrender my life, my ambitions, my plans, and I yield to you and to your spirit. May I be guided by you, and I thank you. It's in your name, Jesus. I ask all these things, and everyone says, and everyone says, hallelujah. Welcome to the family of God. Hallelujah. You've been listening to the Freedom House Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like more information about our house, please visit our website, fhus.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and please consider sharing this podcast with your friends and family. See you next time.